1: on drum, beat out old trouble and drum, and kick old trouble out the door. Beat me and rhythm on the drum, beat me and rhythm on the drum, beat me and rhythm on the drum, and kick old trouble out the door, kick him out the door.
0: Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You'll be able to access the podcast the next day or two by going to 3cr.org.au. Don't forget, we've got hundreds of podcasts of Radical Australia, of fascinating people who've made a contribution to uh, the society, where people that other people... You won't here on the corporate owned media or the government guild at ABC but you will hear them on community radio three C R on Radical Australia. My name is Joseph Saskone, I've got an fascinating guest. Obviously all our guests here on Radical Australia are fascinating. But occasionally some are more fascinating than others. Hello, Liz Ross, how are you?
2: Hi Joe. Um, well thanks and I love the introductory song and the singer. Just fabulous.
0: Yeah, you know who she is? No, I don't. Uh she's a great Australian singer. Uh she's about our age, I reckon now.
2: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> and, and uh and her famous song was Girls in Our Town and I interviewed her a few Oh, years ago. right. Yes, yes, I
2: do know who you mean
0: now. Yeah, yeah. She uh, she was a bit bit cut up because Girls in Our Town uh, she didn't get the royalties. She only sang the song she didn't write it.
2: <laughs>
0: oh yeah, yeah. yeah Now now, Liz Look uh, what we're going to do Then I'll just go through The first 10 or 15 minutes I just want to talk about you Where you've come from and, and then you've written a number of books Which are really fascinating Which I want to discuss And share with the listeners And hopefully some of the listeners Will be able to uh, access them At some time in the near future Especially during this period Where nothing is really happening for people Now just for our listeners' sake, what year were you born?
2: 1947.
0: 1947. And what's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth?
2: Oh, goodness. Um... <laughs> You've got me there. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Do you have, have
0: a childhood memory?
2: Uh, probably. Um, we did go over. My family was over in England. Um, in the 1950s and uh, the early 50s. And we, um, we, we, you know, we had the snow and I remember tobogganing down the snow, you know, down the streets on the snow. And we had, uh, we lived in a, a house that used to be a doctor's house and it had an air raid shelter in the backyard. So I remember I remember that and the school was across the road and that sort of thing. Um, and then the next memory probably is back in Australia in Mitcham in Melbourne when it was right on the outskirts of Melbourne.
0: So were you were you actually born in Australia? Or were you born in England? Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, I was born in Sydney.
0: In Sydney. So what? Yeah. why did your family go to England after the war?
2: Uh, my father was in the armed forces. So um, mm-hmm. we, we, he was sent all over the place. We, we actually went to Japan for uh, uh, when I was very little, which I, I don't have any memory of. But um, obviously, he was in the um, occupying forces then.
0: Mm-hmm. So, were you educated in Australia or overseas or all over the place? Ah,
2: uh, well, my first school, my first school was in England, in in London, um, and then after that, it, the rest of it was in Australia. Um, and a proportion of it was in Canberra, and then I went to university in Canberra as well.
0: So was it private schools or public schools that you went to? Uh,
2: It it was mostly public, but I did go to a private school when I was in in Sydney um, for a period and uh, went to a Church of England girls' school. Um, And I got told not to sing in the... because we had assembly every morning and we sang hymns and things, and I got told not to sing... Because I I I was um, off key, so I was putting everybody else off.
0: What?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you're one of my a, people, a memory a memory I enjoy anyway.
0: Yeah, you're one of my people. I I sing off key constantly, so <laughs> yes. I think you're one of the uh, 99 of the population. <laughs>
2: Probably, the yes, yes.
0: Yeah. So, what did you do at university in Canberra?
2: Well, I was I was I did science in Canberra and a biological sciences, which I loved. And afterwards, I then went on to do uh, do a library diploma and then worked in the, in the science section of the National Library. They were going to set up a National Science Library at the time, but they never did. But we did have a science library section within the National Library. And it was really, well, it was really in the, um, just... In a period just before I went to did the library diploma, where I started to get more political and so the first the first thing that I remember of that kind you know something sort of more active i suppose um, was I went to a series of lectures by a woman called Liz Reed, who later went on to be the advisor for Gough Whitlam, and she gave a series of lectures, and she brought in people from from the Women's Electoral Lobby, from Women's Liberation, from Gay Liberation. And we had a whole range of sessions there. And a lot of the things that they were talking about actually made real sense to me. And because I hadn't really sort of, um, you know, in a, in a number of the classes in the science course, um, there weren't very many women because, I mean, it's still the case, but not many women do science. Mm-hmm. Or not as many as should, anyway, and um, so so that sort of pointed me to a number of things that I'd thought about the position of women in society, and so that was really the start of sort of active politicisation then. And then, once I was working in the library, I got, or once I was in the uh, doing the diploma, I got more involved in in politics, and then. At one stage, I lived in Women's Liberation House in Canberra, and we supported Pat Etoc in her attempt to get right. elected and did a range of other things. So, yeah, it was um, really from the early 70s was where I sort of started to get politically active. Well, were
0: you in Canberra in
2: 1971? I was, yes.
0: Now, I'm going to ask you something. uh because I was—I think I was nineteen or eighteen—I was in Canberra. I came down for the National Day of Rage. Do you remember that massive protest that happened in I Canberra? Re-
2: I remember it, but I wasn't involved in it.
0: Ah, right. Yeah, no. We went—we yes. went from—we went from, uh, we went from uh, uh, building to building, public service building to public service building, till we turned up at uh, Parliament House. That was it. That was the first time I was beaten up by the federal police. So that was that was an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, I think they were terrified. No, ha-
2: oh right. Yeah. No, I had I had a big argument with my mother at the time about the right to protest and being against the war and everything like that because you know in in our family being well being against the war wasn't something my mother. Vietnam War was not something my mother agreed with. My father had died by then so um mm-hmm. I, I suspect he he wouldn't have really have, have liked the Vietnam War, but I don't know.
0: No, yeah, right. So 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 you're mainly involved in women's liberation at that particular period in time?
2: Yes, yeah, that was my main involvement. Uh, until I moved to Melbourne in nineteen seventy five. Because Canberra was I well, you get you get to I got involved in things and that was that was okay but
1: I really wanted
2: to do more you know I started going to conferences interstate and I really wanted to be more involved in in politics and it was either Canberra or... I mean it was either Melbourne or Sydney that I went to so I ended up in Melbourne because I knew a few people few people here and I haven't left since.
0: So I'll just ask go back one step. Um as you stated, you know, a lot of women don't do science. Do you think it's a structural issue? Or why do you think uh, it, even in today people, women aren't
2: doing science? Oh, it is. And if you look at the careers of women scientists, it's quite clear that they they get off um, second best. They're not... Uh, the, the whole profession is... Well, the whole sort of industry is not geared towards women having children, so they lose out in all sorts of... Um, experience and time and everything like that but the the discrimination against women or oppression of women is is a structural thing it's it's not it's not to do with decisions by you know one lot of people or another and certainly not to do with individual decisions and the fact still is that women are not encouraged in science in in as they go through the the high school system uh, that's quite clear and also we've now more recently had governments that are uh, seem particularly anti-science, and the message, you know, just go, keeps going down the line, I oh, will do law or business um, and don't do science. And so, yeah, that's. I mean, that's partly what happens to women. I, I was lucky in high school I had a very inspirational teacher. I, I had always wanted to do science, but I had a very inspirational teacher who, uh, who really encouraged me as well. Mm-hmm. But
0: that's yeah. what
2: you need. And you need the structural changes to to seriously encourage women to to get into all kinds of industries. And, I I mean, I'm not not shilling for um, for, uh, managers or anything like that, but uh, uh, you've basically got to have things that keep women in in work and free childcare and all that kind of stuff is is fundamental to to that and also the early, early encouragement to... To, hit, to sort of kick back at the structural oppression.
0: Mm. So w- when you got to Melbourne in 75, were you still in, uh, involved with libraries or did you move into an, another area, use your science degree? Uh,
2: no, I, I was in libraries when I first came here, uh, but then I got more involved in politics and decided that, well, that I, I didn't think that there was much of a future in terms of of trade union activism, and um, I've got involved in uh, in left wing organisations by that stage, and um, and so I decided I wanted to do do uh, this is after I've been in Melbourne for a couple of years. Um, I decided I wanted to do more trade union, more sort of revolutionary political work. So I ended up in um, what's now Centrelink for about 13 years. Mm-hmm. and was in very involved in all the struggles against the Accord during that time.
0: Right. So what was, it, what was it like working in Centrelink at that period?
2: Well, Centrelink had actually been during the 70s, when uh, when Fraser was in power. Centrelink had, had actually been quite a militant um, department, and there were lo- a lot of, you know, sort of union activism at the time, and... Quite rebellious uh, stuff, and they'd won. They they'd had a huge fight against Fraser, where he tried to bring in all kinds of um, you know, legislation against them, trying to you know stand down public sector workers and all of that sort of stuff. And so, and in the end, they'd won that fight. So, um, you know, there, there's a pretty bolshy lot in in Centrelink then, and uh, so when it came to the accord coming in there were plenty of people who weren't prepared to accept the strictures of the accord either. And uh, so we had... I remember one year against the Hawke government, against, against um, the accord, that we had three disputes running all in the one year. We had a sector, you know, public sector-wide wage dispute. We had... Um, uh, I think it was a public sector-wide um, OH&S, you know, because computers were really coming in then, and so we needed new furniture, we needed new safety requirements and we also had a staffing issue with the with the department. So we were fighting on all fronts and we were fighting against not just the government, not just the department, but also the ACTU and to a certain extent our own union.
0: Right, so, so were you involved in what, rank-and-file organisations? Or were you actually involved in, uh, uh, in the union itself
2: for... Not well I detail. was sorry um I was a delegate there uh, mm-hmm. r- pretty well early on and so so um we did try to to get sort of rank and file workers together and they did manage to do that in Sydney there was a rank and file group that developed in Sydney in the mid 80s uh, we didn't manage to get that done down here in Melbourne but we had a fairly active um delegates committee and we had a reasonable amount of influence within the delegates committee in terms of uh, things that went to mass meetings and making sure that mass meetings were called and all of that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, so I was sort of active on the ground as a, you know, rank and file worker and a delegate. Mm-hmm. And they were, I think the union was very glad when I finally left. I'm and sure
0: the they were. <laughs> what was I was the
2: so I've, I've never been offered a life membership or anything like that. Oh, that's
0: not good. What was the union?
2: <laughs> well, it's now the CPSU. It was right. the um, the ACOA. There were two unions in the the sort of white collar section of the public sector: the ACOA and the APSA. Um, and that reflected the two sorts of levels of work within the within the public sector. And at one stage, there was also the Federated Clarks Union who had a, a foothold in the tax department.
0: Right. So, so once you left Centrelink, did you continue in, in paid employment or did you branch into mm-hmm. other areas?
2: No, basically, well, all the stress and strain of, of everything in the, in the public sector meant that I had a bit of a sort of time off, really. Um, mm-hmm. And that's when I started writing... I'd been writing lots of times before this, but that's when I first started to write my first book, actual book, which was about the deregistration of the Builders' Labourers Federation because during all of this time under the Accord, I'd been also involved in the um, Defender Union's Defender BLF Committee and done all kinds of other sort of support work for the Builders' Labourers. So... um, I, because I'd had all that contact with people, because I'd made friends through the struggle, um, I was able to approach people to uh, to get permission, you know, to get their trust to be able to, to write a book. Because, of course, as you know, um, the BLs had no time for people who, because so many people had misrepresented them, not listened to their stories, uh, told lies about them and all the rest of it. So they were... They were right to be very wary of anybody coming in and saying, "Well, I want to write your story." Mm.
0: So, so, just to refresh people's memories, a lot of people who listen to this program, you may not believe this, are relatively young, and uh, they have do. no idea. <laughs> they have no idea about the Builders Labourers Federation deregistration. Could you just give us a few minutes, actually, what happened?
2: Sure. Okay. Well, this was. We have to remember this is a Labour Party. A Labour Party who came to government saying we want to, you know, we want to have consensus, we want to have harmony, we want to, we want things that are better for workers. Now, when the Builders Labourers said, "Well, we're not getting the, this, you know, better thing for workers. We're actually the the bosses are making more and more profits. We're not getting a fair share of it," and so they decided to uh, that they would. Still, keep fighting um, because at that time they were amongst the most militant of the of the unions. They'd had they'd had one really good wages and conditions, but you know wages and conditions that could be improved all the time too. And they'd built up a, a really strong union uh, where the rank and file, through their their monthly uh, general meetings, could. Could determine the policy of the union, could overthrow what the management committee had had decided to do, all of that sort of stuff. So it was a very democratic union. Anyway, the the um, the famous story about Bob Hawke at one stage because he because the under the accord, in fact. What they, what they said it was going to be was the exact opposite of what they actually delivered. So they held back wages, they brought in or, or um, encouraged more draconian legislation against workers and they decided that the BLF um, was too recalcitrant, too, too determined to keep on fighting and so at one meeting, uh, Bob Hawke apparently came into the Cabinet, slammed his fist down on the table and said, I'm going to get those bastards. And so what they then did, in collaboration with both the Victorian and uh, and New South Wales state Labor governments, so this is Labor governments down the line, uh, decided mm. that they would deregister the union, which meant that you could not, because they had such a tight control on the building sites because you had to be a union member to be on site. They, The government, with the aid of the police, said you cannot be on this site if you are a member of the Builders' Laborers' Federation. So they brought in that legislation. And they were aided and abetted by a number, particularly what was then the the Carpenters, Carpenters' Union, the Building Workers' Industrial Union, the BWIU. They, they were... The government and the police were aided and abetted by that union um, to help smash the union. So you had big fights at the building sites. You had sign-over letters where the police were standing there next to the BWIU officials and delegates, forcing people to sign over. And there's one you know, one of the guys from the BLs who was there, he said you know, they were going in through barbed wire fences um, and gates and there were the police. And they were saying, sign over on this paper. And some of them who'd come from parts of Eastern Europe where there'd been you know, quite a deal of repression and state police and all of that were totally terrified and angry that this was happening to their union. And so that's what happened in the end. They destroyed the BLF. So
0: what, what year was it deregistered? This is the kind of game Nin- that came... Yeah. 1986...
2: But the union yes. did hold on. It held on to until 1991. Because other things that they did, they raided the union office. They stole all the equipment. They, they, at the union's expense, they, they installed a, a, a um, oh, a coordinator, not a coordinator, but anyway, whatever it was called, uh, to take control of the union, to take control of the funds. He and, uh, you know, that went on right through till about. About 1990, and when the union thought they they actually could get the numbers together to have another go at being registered, the Labor Party government, both here and you know Victoria, New South Wales, and and federal, basically extended the deregistration. And um, so, in the end, the uh, union went into the what's now the CFMEU.
0: Yeah, I think I think people forget how bad it was. I used to come down every year when I was a student, to work on building sites. Oh,
1: right. in
0: 1970. And uh, I did it for about two or three years. And you'd stand on a street corner, a truck would turn up, and the bloke would come out and say, you, you, you. You'd jump yep. on the truck, and there, there, was, there was nothing. There was no protection of any type. There was no protective clothing. You inhaled dust. It was just... And you got paid at the end of the day. It was just terrible. And what the Building yep. Labourers Federation did uh, to organise... Um, that type of uh, labour was just an extraordinarily uh, effective uh, mechanism, and uh, today they've got you know most of, some of the best conditions in Australia because of their militancy. So when That's you wrote right. the book, yeah, how and long it was did it also, take?
2: Yep. Sorry, it was also a political leadership by the union um, at that yep. stage. The Communist Party in its various guises. Was quite heavily involved in the construction industry, and and it was their it was their politics really that sort of enabled them to build that kind of fighting union too.
0: That's right, because it was you were just like a, you were a little more than a slave. If you got injured on the site, well, you didn't get hired the next day. It was that simple. If you died, that's don't right, forget about that's you. right. People don't forget how and this this is this is the early 70s. we We're talking right. about not nineteen twenty. So yeah. how long did it take you to write that book?
2: Oh. Well, I, w- I was. It probably took about seven years altogether. I interviewed about fifty people for it, mostly rank and file union members, um, which makes it quite makes it unique in terms of uh, a lot of labour history. Because a lot of the time, labour history is about interviewing the people at the top. But I made a point that the book is absolutely informed by the rank and file members of the union. So. Um, Yes, but I did. In, I I also did interview Bill Kelty, and he said to me that he had not regretted deregistering the BLF. Mm. So, so is and it that, still
0: available? Yeah, so,
2: sorry,
0: is the book still available?
2: Oh, absolutely, yes. You can get it either through Red Flag Books or the New International Bookshop, and they've got mail order. You know, sort of online ordering. So, it's certainly available there. Um, and i must admit even though i say so myself it really is a fantastic read because i have got so much of what the ordinary building workers felt about the situation what you know what they did how they fought back uh yeah you know, the the real it, people talk about heroism these days but these people really were incredibly brave uh they stood up for their principles they fought for the union and they fought to the end, you know. So it was, um, so that that in the book, that's what really, really comes out that what what real unionism can be.
0: Yeah, because I remember, you know, I've been associated with Free CR since nineteen seventy seven, you know, a year after it was formed. I remember during that period, because of the Free CR support for Builders Labourers Federation, that. Uh, the Cain Labor Government also attempted to close down 3CR. That's, that's right, our, yes. Uh,
2: that's how yes, pernicious I
0: remember the whole thing that. was. Mm. Yeah,
2: I remember that very well. There was a big fight there because, um, yes, cause they, because 3CR absolutely supported the Builders' Laborers, they were really wonderful. It was was one of the ways that the union could, could get out and get their voice heard. And the same happened with the nurses as well. 3CR did a magnificent job with the nurses too because they had their daily program and that was a way because this was all before the internet and before facebook and all of this sort of stuff so getting your message out because the mainstream press wouldn't print it getting your message out was really important so mm. you know both both unions relied on the left press and on 3CR for getting their message out. And I know they all, I know the nurses had daily bulletins and things like that where they would report back on what was going on. And again, that was another sort of rank and file struggle that I talk about a bit in my latest book, which is about the accord years. And um, so, yeah, we we owe a lot to both the builders, labourers and the nurses.
0: That's right. So what's the book called? This book, the first book you wrote? The new
2: the new, new, one's called Stuff the Accord. Um, no, 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 no. I want to
0: go. I want to go. We've got plenty um, of time. We've got plenty of, <laughs> of, what was the first one called, The Builders of Labour? Well,
2: of course it had to be Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win. Because that, right. that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's their slogan. So it was the story of the DLF from 19... I went back to 1981 and went right up to 1994...
0: Right. So that is still available. That's great. Yeah, definitely. It's still available. Now, what was your next uh, foray into uh, writing?
2: Well, my next foray into writing, again, it's again sort of about the left, but um, from a different standpoint there, and that's about uh, gay liberation and the left in Australia because there's a lot of history about gay liberation that leaves out the The absolutely critical role that the left played during the during that whole struggle um it was the left who who were involved right from the beginning um and who were leading in a lot of the struggles that happened. The reason that we had the first Mardi Gras was effectively because there were left wing activists in the organi- well left wing activists who called it in the first place and then were in the organizing Group. But before that, there'd been other groups as well, including Gay Liberation, which the the left was involved with. Because, you know, it, it stood to reason from the from left wing perspective that that you were against oppression, whether it was women's oppression, black oppression, gay oppression, whatever the issue was, the left was on the side of the oppressed, and so they were also there because the left was an actor is an activist. Sort of group of people. um, They're also there in that fight as well. So yes, so that's that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to I wanted to um, tell the story, tell what had actually happened, what had been left out of so many histories, uh, and put the story out there so that people actually knew their history. That's one thing I'm really really keen on is that people actually know their history, which is why I write the things that I write, because you need to know your history. You need to learn from your history. You need to understand what the politics were, what the fight was, all of that sort of stuff. And um, so, you know, the, the title of that book is is Revolution is for Us. And that came from a quote from one of the er- very early gay liberationists in America. And his, his quote was, um, which I'll read out, because he was co-founder of Gay Liberation in in America, which is where it first started, and he said, you know, why he why he was involved, and he said there was going to be a revolution, and we were going to be part of it. So, you know, again, you get that that sense of people fighting, of wanting to fundamentally change society, not just bring about reforms, but actually fundamentally change the world.
0: And how did you go about so, getting the material for this book? You know, you said with the BLF, you. Interviewed uh, rank and file members. How did you go about writing this one?
2: Well, some of it was from my own experience of being involved in the gay liberation movement as well, but also, mm. um, you know, because with the BLF I'd been involved in their, you know, in their, their support group and in doing things in my own union to support the BLs. In this case as well, I relied on the most magnificent. Um, uh, ASSET, I suppose you call it ASSET, uh, source, resource, um, which is the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. Now, I was at one of the first meetings at the National Homosexual Conferences where we... I didn't myself, but I supported at a call for uh, an archives, and that was in 1978. So ever since 1978, we've been collecting material from all around Australia, some international stuff as well, but we're ending up with an invaluable collection of material. But I also um, did interview a number of people who I knew from the time as well, people like Ken Davis. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Murphy. Oh, I've forgotten his first name. How embarrassing! Um, That's all right. I'll it happens to all of us as we get older. <laughs> I <don't matter> <laughs> <American>. <laughs> uh, Phil Carswell, who was very very active around the AIDS. Uh, issues as well later on, but um, so I interviewed a range of people like that 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 I that I knew from the time, uh, but also there's a, quite a lot of written material too. So I put I sort of gathered a lot of that together as well.
0: Right, is that book still available?
2: That certainly is. Yes, yeah, that's also available from both Nibs and Red Flag Bookshop.
0: Right. Okay. Now. You've put together some extraordinary uh, work uh, recently regarding the book has it has it come out yet officially has it been launched in yes. book
2: yes yes we launched it in in these days of zoom we launched it over zoom
0: you launched it when
2: over zoom you know I did the zoom
0: I oh, zoom, zoom when was that when was that
2: nibs?
0: in the last uh, few weeks or Pardon? Was it in the last few weeks, or uh, it
2: was the end of August, I think. Yes. Right. And it is. Yeah. I think if you look for uh, NIBS, if you go to NIBS or, or look at NIBS and um, at YouTube, you'll, you'll see a, the YouTube launch because I co-launched it with um, another book written by Sam Oldham called uh, "Without Bosses," which is a fascinating history of. Australian workers and their attempts at rank and file organisation during, mostly during the 70s, that's um, yes. full of full of fascinating information. So we had a a great launch together.
0: Right. So what's this book called? This new book called?
2: Okay. It's called Stuff the Accord. Pay up. Now, I picked that title because during the Accord years, the the union that I was involved in, as I said, the ACOA, they put out a leaflet saying, the Accord says pay up. Now, we knew the Accord didn't say pay up, so we altered our badges to saying stuff the Accord, pay up. Um, And really, so my book's about uh, workers' resistance to the Accord because, again, once again, that's not a history that... That's told. The, the history you get told is either that it was fabulous, that it was really, really good for workers, uh, or two that it was good, but workers didn't didn't. It wasn't implemented properly. And at one stage, Tribune, the Communist Party paper, actually said that pensioners didn't. Do the right thing by the accord, and that's why it didn't work. Which I thought was about the lowest blow you could you could make, because the communist party, the main communist party at the time, supported the accord, and they were instrumental in in writing it.
0: Mm. Again, again, for our younger listeners, could you explain to people what the accord was, who was involved, and what was um, what was the outcome?
2: Okay, well, very briefly. Uh, The Accord was what was called a social contract and they were very popular in the late 70s, early 80s. And what they were, were agreements between peak union bodies, the government and sometimes the employers. So in Sweden you had uh, uh, the equivalent of the Accord. In Austria you had the equivalent of the Accord. In Britain you had the equivalent of the Accord until the workers threw it out. But... So it was a thing where you signed on the dotted line and you said, OK, we'll do the government will do certain things, the employers will agree to do certain things, and the unions will agree to do certain things. And that was all about restoring profitability in the economy. And the promise was that workers wouldn't have to fight for wage increases or improvements in conditions, that this would come smoothly through the system, the employers would agree to it, you know, you'd have a bit of discussion the the government would set up the 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 external structure the laws and everything like that to make make this possible now anybody with half a brain understands that if it's about if it's about the economy if it's about restoring profits which at the time were starting to go down then by definition workers could not benefit because the profits come from workers' labour. So if you're going to restore profit levels, you have to take it from the workers. And that was fundamentally what it was all about. It was about making sure that workers sacrificed wages and conditions. It was policed by the ACTU. And in fact, one of the newspapers said quite openly that the ACTU had become the policing agent of, of the working class for the for the government and for the employers and that's what happened basically uh, union level unionization levels dropped, wages dropped, conditions dropped uh, bosses profits rose and fundamentally uh, the the other fundamental thing that it did was that it broke down this whole idea of workers solidarity that workers in one job, support workers in, an, you know, in another factory or another department in the public service or whatever, whatever it was, that you sh- that you were on one side, that you showed solidarity to your side, you supported their struggles, they supported yours. And the whole point of the Accord was to break through and smash that level of solidarity. And with the, all the laws that they had, with smashing the, the BLF, with smashing the pilots' union, where they brought in the armed um, for- the, you know, the air force to break the mm. pilots' union, all of that sort of stuff. That's that's what happens, and that's what happens when you sign a deal with the government and the employers to restore the economy. And that's what we're facing today. And that's what I'm so angry about the ACTU being part of these committees with the government and the bosses, because you can be sure that it'll be wage and condition cuts. Uh, so that the bosses can get their, keep their profits.
0: Yeah, Let's just go back to the book. Now, again, mm-hmm. how did you go about uh, compiling this particular book?
2: Right, well, there were a whole range of ways that I did it. Oh, there's a chapter on the BLF, so I took it from the book that I'd written. Um, I'd written a lot about the nurses' dispute because I was involved in that, and I'd interviewed Irene Bolger and a number of nurses. So... There was a chapter about the nurses there. I also spoke to Sue Jackson, who'd been involved in the struggle for equal pay and supporting the nurses. So they were talking about how women fared under the accord. I spoke spoke to a guy called Graham Haynes, who was involved in the big dispute at Rogue River, uh, and also spoke to um, Luke Vandermeulen down in the valley about the struggles... Over the final stages of the accord, about the enterprise bargaining that happened under the accord, um which has been so disastrous for workers, so I spoke to him, and I used a lot of you know resources that I collected over the years of my own writing and my own experience of of what had happened under the under the accord years. so I covered things like um uh, yeah there were uh, let me see oh. The Sequeb Dispute, um, the Dollar Sweets, which most people wouldn't remember, but it was the first time that Peter Costello, uh, you know, sort of gained his experience in union bashing.
0: That's when he got his stripes, yeah. That's right,
2: yeah. yeah. I remember the Dollar
0: Sweets, yeah.
2: Yeah, 15 people uh, it was, yeah. And Hawke sent a letter or a, a text to the boss of Dollar Sweets saying, good on you, keep going, stand up against the unions. Yep, yep. And that was in the very <laughs> early years of the Accord. Why
0: do you think we find ourselves in a situation in Australia in 2020 when striking is basically illegal?
2: Because of class collaboration. I mean, that's what the Accord was about, and it to- and it took, from the high point of the 70s, it took the ruling class in co- and the, the union leadership in collaboration with them that, that this amount of time
1: in using
2: various sort of methods, whether it was the accord or whether it was a more, um, well, I couldn't say confrontational, but it was a more openly right-wing uh, agenda of the Howard governments to smash the union movement. And basically, we had a union leadership that did its best to uh, hold back on, on struggle, to, to you know, to do deals, to collaborate with the ruling class, to make sure that workers couldn't fight back. And that's that's fundamentally why we're in the the situation that we're in now. The union leadership has nothing to offer workers in Australia, nothing, because we even, I mean, we see this more recently with the, on the campuses. Where the where the union went to the vice chancellors under this COVID stuff, they went to the vice chancellors and said, have we got a deal for you? We will accept on behalf of our members up to 10% pay cuts and various cuts in conditions if you'll sign on the dotted line. Well, there was an absolute revolt by the members, but... They're not. They haven't been strong enough, and the union officials are pushing through or okaying, acquiescing to a number of of um, agreements now, where jobs are being cut left, right, and centre. Wages are being cut up to 15%. Uh, you know, it's just a tragedy. And the reason that there as well is that the. Union leadership and the whole environment that we've been in—the neoliberal environment, which which values individuals as opposed to the collective—means uh, that workers are isolated, they're alienated, they haven't got the, the union to back them up, and that's why we're—you know—it's taken the the you know the ruling class and the union officials a long time to do this, you know, four decades or so, but still. They've, that's what they've achieved. They've achieved a working class that is not, that is very, very weakened, and we have to rebuild from where we are. We can't, we can't just wring our hands and say, well, this, you know, this is awful. We actually have to, like they are doing in the NTU and in a number of other unions, starting to rebuild, starting to fight back.
0: That's right. Now, going back, you think the rot started when we started to have professional politicians, career politicians and career union bureaucrats because, you know, when I look at people in Parliament and I look at people in um, leadership positions in the trade union movement, many of them, if not most of them, have no real-life experience of actually uh, being involved in that workforce.
2: That's right, yeah. Uh, But it's also fundamentally... Well, there are outside factors as well. We have to say that the high point of working class struggle post-World War II within the late 60s and early 70s, leading to a revolution in Portugal uh, where workers did take control for a short period of time and in Australia we had our highest strike figures since 1919 Um, and then the bosses turned on the working class and they, they started to fight back under the whole neoliberal agenda and that's what the accord was. It wasn't it wasn't, you know, it was a neoliberal project. And that meant that that you had this whole change of, of politics more generally, of a general weakening of the working class, a general weakening of the left, and so it meant that the right started to be hegemonic in terms of the politics of the situation and in terms of organising what was going on. And you have a union leadership Growing up in that period of class collaboration, who who whose sole sole purpose is to broker between the bosses and the and the workers, and their their deal is, their their crowning achievement is to do a deal. It, it doesn't matter whether the deal screws their members. It, it's to do the deal. That's what they're there for. They're brokers, um, and they're also there because. They have career prospects of going into Parliament, like you said. You know, people who've got no experience in the workforce who, you know, not that I'm slamming universities, but who go from industrial relations courses at universities into union leadership, into politics or on the boards of business or the Reserve Bank or wherever it is that they go. And they're the ones who, you know, because it's all about... It's not about... Working class power. It's not about changing the world. It's about doing deals. It's about making making their peace with the capitalist state. Mm.
0: Have you got? We've only got about another five or six minutes. Have you got any other projects uh, that you're thinking about, or you you've commenced?
2: Um, well, I've got a very short term project that I'm doing, which is to look at the way that the Australian state has used the armed forces against workers, the history of that in Australia. And there's quite a lot more than I was actually aware of. So I'm going to be writing something about that. And I'm also looking at the impact of of, the, of COVID on women workers, uh, you know, as to whether whether that's had a, a an, another sort of impact. But at the moment... Um, I only just finished the book last year, my book the Accord*, so um, I'm really just responding to a few of the issues that are coming up, rather than taking on a whole big new project. But I'm sure something will will come up that I'd really like to to talk about. One one of the things which is sort of off track a little bit is that I'd still like to have another look at the way that. Um, that there was sort of some of this right-wing science that is a, is around at the moment, particularly uh, the issues around IQ and racism, the way that, you know, there have been various scientists who claim that race is, uh, you know, inferiority because of your race is something that is genetically um, we'll or biologically from, we'll from determined.
0: We f- go from physical eugenics to intellectual eugenics.
2: <laughs> that's right, yes. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So, I'd like to, write, you know, so we'll delve a bit more into that because those people are still around. They're pe- certainly still around in America, mm. and so because you've had race a long, is such a huge issue in America as well.
0: Mm. Look, you've had a long, long and productive life. Have you got any um, advice? I oh, know <laughs> we don't usually like giving advice. But obviously, there are younger people who are embarking on a life of activism, you know, are listening to this program. Do you have mm-hmm. any advice? Because a lot of people start off on a journey mm-hmm. and they don't, it's not a lifelong journey, like in your case and in my case. So people do something, they get involved in some type of issue and then they just drop off and become disillusioned and cynical. What stopped you becoming disillusioned and cynical? Uh,
2: it was. It was Marxist politics, basically. It was understanding, fundamentally understanding, what was needed to change the world. And that is the self-activity of the working class. That is the only way we are going to be able to change the world. And so long as I keep that really clear in my mind, that it is that that is going to change the world, that that is the force that is going to change the world, then I've been able to understand what's been going on um I haven't been swayed by some of the other you know get rich quick type of of solutions that people come up with um you know like like the class collaboration of the accord. you know you can get sucked into that sort of thing and think well this is this is a way we can actually control the bosses we can we can tell them what to do this way, but you know the reality isn't that at all. The reality is that it's only by workers acting independently um with class politics that's going to change the world and understanding that has been fundamental to my to my staying active and to be, going to be active till the day I die to be honest <laughs> but but you yeah. have to have clear politics you have because it helps you through all of the dilemmas all of the issues that come up how do you deal with covid how do you deal with the question of police powers that you were talking about before with, you know, where the poli- the government is using this um, pandemic to increase the powers of police. Well, we're against that. We're not for the, you know, we don't support the those protesters, um, the anti-COVID protesters. No, around, that's right. yeah. But, we, but yeah. we don't support the use of the police. Exactly and we don't the support the is. use of laws like incitement. Um, and so, you know, we're involved in a campaign now to... Uh, because of what the police have been doing up in New South Wales. We're involved in a, a campaign, you know, basically fighting for our democratic rights.
0: Mm. Do you see any signs, any signs of uh, working-class self-activity anywhere around the country currently?
2: Uh, well, yes, there are patches of it in the NTU um, on the campuses. There's, There are also... Um, in a couple of places, the teachers have been quite active. Uh, I think there are there are a number of places where I think in the warehouses there's been some activity as well over the you know over the last couple of months. Yeah, it has been, are, yeah, the
0: warehouses, yeah, been
2: forefront I think in the last year. Yes, yeah. yes. So I think there are places where where. There, there will always be struggle, uh, short of being living in a you know totally authoritarian state, and even there, but there always there always will be struggle. Um, so they're the little sparks that encourage us to keep going. And I think the working class isn't dead. There's no way the working class is dead. And I think this pandemic worldwide has thrown up so many challenges that I think workers will rise to, rise to that challenge. So I'm, I remain optimistic, although I think that it's very difficult in Australia at
0: the moment. Oh, it is. Look, I'd like to congratulate you for ensuring that the real history uh, the cha- that causes change in this country is recorded. Because as you said, I mean, history basically is the history of the ruling classes. Mm. And I'd like to congratulate you for doing that, because a lot of people, uh, when, you, when, you, when you read history, it's... It, kind of sickens you. I've done a lot of research on the Eureka rebellion and the type of research that I think is just extraordinarily bad in the majority of cases because people don't look at the political dimension, as you said. So I'd like to congratulate you for doing that and I'd like to encourage you while you can to continue to do that because it leaves a legacy which uh, we can all learn from. So, Liz Ross, thank you for coming in Radical Australia. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And if you or I are still alive when you produce another book, please let us know so I can uh, talk to you again about it. And if there's anything you think that you see that that's interesting, that's happening, I'm always interested in uh, uh, allowing our, letting our listeners know what's going on. So thank you very much and all the best for the future. And congratulations cool. on a life well lived.
2: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to to talk with you and to talk to the audience. But also, yeah, one thing I'd like to finish on is say get involved in the struggles that are going on today, and certainly support this this fight for democracy that's happening right now. Um, uh, that um it's all through Facebook, but it started in Sydney when the police attacked the demonstration um, up in Sydney. The on the university campuses. So uh, there's there's still fights happening and the main thing is stay involved, stay fighting.
0: Thank you very much and look after yourself.
2: And thank you, Joe. Very, Very much appreciate it. And good on you with all the struggles too.
1: Vai e He took my body And put it in a bird With a leak at the bottom Destined not to float And the tide Quiet on the way Down the river And out into the bay and There is a ship Seven socks.